Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn from Wiltshire. Hello, it's Richard Heller from South East London. And today we're delighted to welcome another legend of the world of cricket, reporter, author, commentator, and our very good friend and mentor in Pakistan, Kamar Ahmed. Kamar has reported no fewer than 450 test matches. That is about one-sixth of all those ever played since they began in 1877. And it's more than Pakistan have ever played. Richie Benno may be ahead of him as a test reporter, but that's only because of the 63 tests he played in himself. Kamar, in his early career as a first-class cricketer in Pakistan, was in contention for a test match place himself. But selectors made some funny decisions, then and now. Kamar's also reported 738 one-day internationals, nine of the 12 World Cups... He's written and broadcast for major cricketing outlets in more than one test-playing country. He's a regular contributor to Wisdom. Whenever he reports on cricket, it's always with great authority and integrity. Very recently, he uh, published his autobiography, Far More Than a Game. Kamar, very, very welcome. We hoped you to join us earlier, but conditions are absolutely impossible in Karachi. First of all, have they improved? Thank you for having me. Richard and Peter. Well, great pleasure, Kamar. Absolute pleasure here too. Are things better in Karachi now than they were a couple of weeks ago, Kamar? It has improved a lot uh, than a week earlier. It was all flooded, all the streets, on the, all the drainage system, which uh, in fact doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, all the underpasses were totally flooded and looked like a swimming pool. And people suffered in every part of Karachi. The traffic was not flowing, people were not coming out of their houses, and millions and millions of dollars of damage in the people's houses, even in the posh localities like Clifton or the Defence Society. Uh, you, have, you two have been there before, haven't you? We have. We've had your hospitality more than once. I hope you didn't suffer too much damage yourself, Kamar. Uh, not really. Some of the water came through the main gate of the house I am living in, and it flooded uh, the garden of the house. And eventually, when the sun came out, it uh, all dried up, drained out, and now I feel very safe. Glad to hear that. So it's uh, probably a, a sticky wicket now, uh, Kamar, ideal for your offspring. Drying wicket. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, um, no, but on serious matters, the Pakistan tour this year, I mean, we loved it in Britain. We very excited. We, I, I, everybody in Britain was so grateful to Pakistan for coming. How, what was your assessment of the, of the tour? I think uh, it's fantastic that uh, Pakistan toured England to play a test series, uh, though it was rain-marred. Two tests were affected because of rain. But it's still a great gesture from Pakistan and also by the West Indians to go and play in such circumstances uh, like uh, uh, COVID-19. So absolutely fantastic uh, from cricketing point of view, uh, despite all the uh, trouble that uh, pandemic uh, had affected people, uh, things went all right and the series was played. Fantastic for Pakistanis and for the British uh, cricket lovers. And uh, I just want to tell you that 
Pakistan and England have played so far since 1954. 56 tests played between the two countries on English soil. I'm glad to say that I covered 38 of them since 1974. And would you believe this is the first I did not cover a test match in England against Pakistan since 1974. I got a letter from England Cricket Board apologizing to me for not giving me accreditation, telling me that the visiting team's journalists from the West Indies and Pakistan are not allowed. I was shocked. At least they should have allowed one. And out of all those British journalists, who happened to be about hundreds of them in the British press boxes, only 12 journalists were allowed to cover in a crowdless test match. So that was quite unique and uh, quite uh, disappointing for me who was for the first time not able to cover a Pakistan test on the English soil. But instead, I decided that I go to the mountains in Chitral, camping 14,000 feet in the snow. <laughs> and I haven't, I've lived in London for almost 50 years. I've been all over Europe. What beautiful part of Pakistan is north of Pakistan, you two, Peter and Richard, you have experienced and tasted it, haven't you? I think, Hamar, I was responsible for your first visit to Shifra. Absolutely. You, I'm so grateful. <laughs> you came with us uh, and you lent great distinction, if I may say so, to our touring party as we played cricket at 12,000 feet in the Hindu Kush. So, so thank you very much. I'm so thrilled. I, I was following your progress in Chitral. It was a progress. It was a, a, a state visit, wasn't it, with the, by the former royal house? Yes, I was very well looked after, I, I must tell you. <laughs> now, um, but I did think it is interesting, this decision by the British not to allow a single foreign journalist. I hadn't realised that, and I and I'm not to invite you was uh, obviously uh, questionable. One thing I do feel very strongly, I'd like to know what you feel about this. We owe so much to the Pakistanis. Why cannot the England team pay back the enormous generosity and favour you did us by taking our Test match side to Pakistan to play Test matches in Pakistan this autumn or winter? I suppose uh, every country, Peter, has got uh, their own itinerary and schedules. I suppose things are getting a lot better than it used to be in Pakistan, security-wise. And uh, in the presence of the present PCB chairman, Mr. Hassan Mani, and the new chief executive, Wazim Khan, former of Warwickshire and Leicestershire, things are getting in shape. Teams have started to come in, like Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Teams have come and played uh, a couple of test matches here. Things look a uh, lot secured and uh, other countries promising to come to Pakistan. They feel safe. In fact, the last uh, PSL, which was uh, PSL domestic tournament, was played in Dubai and UAE and Abu Dhabi. Was uh, The last one was played in Pakistan. Unfortunately, because of uh, COVID-19, final stages were not played. But the, the PCB had just come out uh, with their statement. Uh, those matches, uh, semi-finals or final, whatever, will be finished uh, by the end of November. So good signs uh, that uh, even the England team, whose uh, new ECB uh, chief has promised that England will tour Pakistan. I hope they do which indeed comes uh, as a sound of music to the ears of people who follow cricket all over the world, especially series between England and Pakistan. 
So they will be welcome like England welcomed Pakistan. Well, we've experienced them ourselves, Kamar, quite quite undeservedly. Is there a risk, though, that um, Pakistan, like other countries, might become a casualty of a sort of increasingly two-tier test cricket system? You've got matches between the big three being, you know, being heavily favoured by the big three and um, the other countries like, like Pakistan being in, almost in a subsidiary role. And apart from Pakistan, New Zealand have had a, not certainly not had their fair share of international competition bilaterally, despite having a superb team. The standards have gone down in test cricket over the years. I have been covering test cricket since 1974. Test matches uh, seldom used to finish. Most of them used to uh, get draws. Now, because of uh, the influx of uh, limited over games, the standards of, uh, of batting and, in fact, bowling as well have gone down. The reason why test matches are now result-oriented. Test matches finish in two and a half days, in three days, three and a half days, four days. So, uh, in fact, it, it is good that uh, test matches have results. But two-tier system, I think this is a joke. If the International Cricket Council give a full membership and declare you as a test-playing nation, what is this two-tier system? You are degrading yourself, the International Council itself. Why did you give the full membership of the ICC to countries who do not have proper domestic cricket setup, and then knowing fully well that uh, there are no domestic uh, system there, and you give them full membership, and now you're talking about two-tier system. It means you are disgracing yourself. I couldn't agree with you more, Kamar, and I think you're absolutely right to express that outrage, and I imagine it's widely reflected inside Pakistan itself, isn't it? What You're, you're speaking for Pakistan for, uh, and for many other countries. I think not only I'm speaking on behalf of the Pakistan uh, cricket followers and supporters. And in fact, uh, I will say uh, I will go as far as uh, the officials of the cricket board wouldn't like it, that you have a two-tier system. And that all the former cricketers, the great cricketers, uh, people like Sir Vivian Richard, Misty Bar, David Gawa, people, personalities like that uh, will never, I think, uh, or would Mike Atherton would like uh, uh, such a system where you play three teams in one tier and other teams in another tier. I don't think this system will work anyway. Can you explain a bit more, just very clearly, what you mean by a two-tier system? I think test uh, status uh, means full membership uh, of any country which is given the test status by the ICC. And that is in recognition of their standard of cricket. Sometime... Politics also gets involved. So, uh, because of that, uh, Zimbabwe, once given the full membership, had to withdraw from international cricket, from playing test matches, uh, uh, because their standards had gone down. The standards of uh, all the full members of the 12 test-playing nations, that is, full member of the ICC, is not the same. Perhaps that gave uh, the ICC the idea to have a two-tier system. I suppose uh, if they do that, uh, which I'm not in favor of really, uh, it will reflect itself uh, on the International Cricket Council uh, because then they will be kind of degrading teams which don't have as good a record at the highest level like England, Australia, uh, Pakistan or India, uh, West Indies uh, in, in the past. So I suppose the two-tier system may not work. 
and they might uh, have to change again to the same system that uh, exists at the moment. Mm. Well, the, the two-tier system is also, isn't it, Kamau? It's being, I mean, it's still, it's not formal yet, but sort of informally it's emerging for commercial reasons, isn't it? Particularly because of India's huge commercial power. And, um, you know, you make more money out of a bilateral series with India Australia and England than you do with other countries. And so, you know, the, the international cricket is so commercial-minded these days that even if it's not formal, do you not think you, you're getting a, um, a two-tier system informally? I, I think uh, it is important for those who control this game to attract more crowd. Uh, we are, the crowds are dwindling in test matches. They are coming in limited over games like One Day International and T20 and all that. But uh, mother of all cricket, I suppose, uh, is test cricket. And uh, to make it better, you got to have, uh, with all the obligations of the satellite television and television rights and all that. But uh, people now prefer to watch on television. And unless uh, conditions are improved, facilities are improved all over the world in the grounds. Uh, this is what has got to be improved in the system. To attract people, no matter who is playing, whether Afghanistan or Zimbabwe or Bangladesh, or for that matter, West Indians or Pakistanis or Indians, you've got to improve the facilities for the people to attract uh, people in the test matches. And uh, if you start doing two-tier system, then I don't think people would, uh, the spectators, the cricket-loving people will love it. Kamar, I've so enjoyed your autobiography and your life is so interesting and so important because it coincides with the history of Pakistan itself. And you're born in Bihar, uh, in, in what is now India. You have a, this idyllic childhood and then suddenly the darkness of partition and then you have to flee your home, you go across to Karachi and then you rebuild your life, your family does. And then, of course, you grow up as a young man in Pakistan immediately after 1947. You become a cricketer, you become a journalist, you're the one cricketer in the world to dismiss all five of the famous Muhammad brothers. And then you go off and have your great career as a reporter. Uh, you've known all the great figures in modern Pakistan history, cricketers and others. Imran Khan, the prime minister, used to sleep on the sofa in your flat in West London. And so your life is the, the life of Pakistan. And that is what gives your book such importance. But can you tell us, because you've told me, but I think I'd love others to hear it, the, the story of your childhood uh, and how you first saw uh, somebody being, uh, you know, dead bodies and, uh, and the horror and then the escape. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you two being in the game a long time and with all the knowledge uh, behind you, uh, you very well know what... Uh, C.L.R. James, the West Indian, the Afro-Asian West Indian cricket writer, a Marxist, uh, said uh, uh, the quotation of all the quotes that uh, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? So on a similar line, I read Neville Cardis, Sir Neville Cardis, who in one of his uh, lines says far more than a game, this is cricket. That's where I picked the line, the title of my autobiography, far more than it came. Because uh, my autobiography is not about uh, me itself. 
it is about the creation of Pakistan, uh, Peter, as you just mentioned. The first chapter of my book is not about cricket. It is about the traumatic times that I, as a schoolboy in Bihar, uh, suffered and the people, Hindus and Muslims alike, communal riots, killings. When I saw uh, 1946 riots in Bihar, when it happened, and I first time in my life as a schoolboy, I saw a dead body. I did not know what is death. So I saw this man lying on his uh, back uh, with a long spear stuck in his stomach. And uh, I asked my father, what has happened to this man? And he said he's died. So I said, what is death? I had never seen a dead body. So my father turned his face away. And then he turned his face again towards me. He said, I will tell you later. I said, is this the way people die? He said, I will tell you later. So those traumatic days and our neighbors, my father was a dental surgeon, qualified in the 30s uh, from De Montmorency College, which is a university now in Lahore. Our neighbors were Hindus, doctors, and they told my father that uh, you move with your family in my house, these Hindu families, Dr. Hari said, otherwise you will be killed. You can't even go to your village. So in the doctors of the night, we moved to this Hindu doctor's house in a 12 by 12 room. A mob in the evening came to see if we were in the house and they found out we are not. So they tried to inquire with our Hindu neighbor and uh, he told them that uh, they can't enter his house. So he, he saved our lives. Similar thing happened, Muslims saved Hindus' life uh, by moving from what became Pakistan going to India. But my father, a great follower of uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the founder of Pakistan, who was called Qaeda Azam, the great leader, I decided to migrate, leaving his brothers, families, sisters, his property given to, uh, given to his forefathers by the Mughal kingdom for services to medicine. My whole family is into medicine, in fact. And we moved in 1948 to Pakistan, in Karachi. Lived there three months and moved to 100 miles away in city of Hyderabad in the Sindh province where my father practiced uh, dentistry and in a couple of hospitals. And uh, no one in my family ever went back to India. I moved on to, after my graduation in English literature, I moved to England to play cricket. And there I studied journalism. Luckily for me, to get into British journalism was very, very tough especially if you're not an Englishman and your mother tongue is not English. But I had studied English history and English literature during my graduation. I had some background of English history and literature. And luckily one day, the BBC World Service, the language service, uh, wanted someone who could speak Hindi, Urdu fluently and speak English uh, fluently. So they tested my voice, uh, if I uh, had a radio voice, and they said it's okay. That's how I started, in fact, and people started to know me and know me in the British, uh, in the English cricket grounds. And then I started getting jobs from Guardian, The Times, The Telegraph, their Sunday papers, Reuters and AFP, uh, you know, whatnot. And I started to write all over the world on cricket. Uh, I restricted myself to cricket only. And I remained a freelance all my life in cricket journalism. The reason why I have covered so many tests, 450 tests. And I was the first in my family to go to India to cover 78, 79 test series of Pakistan. 
And while there was a break, I decided to go in my hometown in Bihar in Chapra to meet uh, my saviors and uh, my relatives, uh, my mother's relatives, my father's relatives. And I arrived in my hometown. This is absolutely stunning. And I saw this rickshaw tuk-tuk and I said, uh, I want to live in a hotel. Is there a hotel? And he said, uh, because I was living in London then, and uh, he took me to a hotel. To my great surprise, I saw my school from where the first president of India, Dr. Rajinder Parshad, had matriculated. So I became too emotional looking at, emotional looking at my school. And then as he went ahead, I sighted my house where we left in 1948. To my greatest surprise or pleasure, whatever you call it, he stopped the tuk-tuk in front of my house, and which, had, which had become a hotel. But it was your own family, your old family home. Yeah, and uh, I gave the money, this five rupees, instead of five rupees, I don't know, I became too emotional. I gave him hundreds of rupees to this rickshaw driver. Entered my house where all my sisters and brothers were born. And I entered the house. They gave me a room in my house, the reception. I asked them who owns this hotel. They told me, Dr. Hari, the same man who saved us during the killings. So I got out of the house immediately and I walked towards about 150 yards to their house where next to it was my father's clinic, dental clinic as well. Everything was in the same shape. I looked upstairs in the room where we were hiding for about three to three weeks to one month. Then I rang the bell of this Dr. Hari who came up and looked at me and I said, do you see any resemblance in me of anybody? He got panicky and he said to me, tell me exactly who you are. I told him I'm son of Dr. Baki. And he immediately grabbed me and started crying, this Hindu doctor. And so was I. And his servant was looking. He ran back into the house, called the family. What has happened to this doctor? And there is a young man and he's holding him and screaming or weeping or so they all came up and they discovered that it, uh, I'm son of Dr. Bahi. They said, where are you staying? I said, I'm in, staying in my house. How do you know this is a hotel? I said, just a coincidence. And then he said, look, do you know where it is? Your villages, your ancestors' villages? So I said, yes, four miles away from here. So he said, do you know how to go there? I said, I remember the way to go to my village. He was surprised because I was only 10 years old then when I migrated to Pakistan. Then he told me, this is my driver, this is my car. You go to your village, look at it, meet your relatives and all that. And in my marriage, your father was the only Muslim in the wedding ceremony. And now my daughter Rita is getting married. You are going to be the best man. <laughs> oh. This was absolutely fantastic experience. Only you can feel it if you experience it yourself. <laughs> That's an amazing experience, Kamar, though I have, you know, uh, and it's told very movingly in, in your book. We do hear so often, Peter and I, about very warm personal relations between Indians and, and Pakistanis, not least between, you know, Indian and Pakistani cricketers and cricket lovers. And the question sort of comes to both of us, you know, why can't this be felt in politics? Why can't they... You know, the two peoples make themselves known that they, you know, that they want to be at peace and have good relations with each other. This is quite a strange, uh, Richard, because uh, 
Pakistan and India met first time in 1952 after Pakistan in cricket you mean yeah, the first two cricket test matches yeah test test match they, after Pakistan gained test status uh, from the ICC so the first series Pakistan played was against India in 52 in India which Pakistan lost uh, that series but uh, there was a lot of goodwill and uh, since uh, politics uh, came into it and not once not twice three four times uh, relations between pakistan and india at political level deteriorated to such an extent that even they stopped playing cricket at the moment in fact it's it's worth noticing that your visit to india in 1979 was after an 18 year period when there was no cricket between the two countries at all because there'd been two wars in the interim absolutely 1965 war and 1971 the east pakistan which became bangladesh supported by india mrs gandhi was the prime minister then so pakistan became a truncated country then after cessation of uh, east pakistan into bangladesh which its head sheikh mujibur rahman in fact in the general election of pakistan mr zulfikar ali bhutto had lost the election and he still wanted to be the prime minister of pakistan which uh, came as lot of resentment for the bengalis of east pakistan the reason why india was waiting in the wings to help the bengalis to secede from pakistan that's how bangladesh came into being that was quite tragic uh, and the relationship worsened between the two countries at all level including cricket but the strange thing is uh, richard and peter that at the same time eight or nine pakistani cricketers like majid khan sarfraz nawaz mushtaq mohammad asif iqbal adil zahir abbas the great zahir abbas they were all playing county cricket and there were some indians also playing county cricket good, very good relationship between indian and pakistani cricketers always said me but at political level they never never saw eye to eye the reason why after the last series pakistan and india played in 2007 in india the two countries haven't haven't met at test level they play in the icc tournaments like world cup or t20 or champions trophy or something else but this is very tragic uh, for both uh, the supporters and followers of india and pakistan i must say though that that your story about returning to your hometown and that hindi family i mean how heroic of them to hold you in secrecy for 3 weeks while the mob was rampaging around looking for looking to kill muslims wow what a what a phenomenal courage you hear that again and again throughout the world you know during the nazi occupation during isis you know you you, you go up the yazidis all, all these terrible things which have have happened in the last 100 years but that your your story is is part of that bloody and but and, and all this horror produces these amazing episodes of heartwarming humanity and heroism on both sides yeah yeah on both sides come on on a lighter note one of the most enjoyable parts of the book is your descriptions of playing first class cricket in pakistan in uh, in the 50s it's a world of cricket that very few listeners will know about and um, particularly enjoyed the story of your first first class match because the um, the secretary of the sind cricket association mr arain picked himself as your captain even though he wasn't any use as a first class cricketer and that sort of thing happened rather a lot didn't it 
when there are no systems uh, in any setup, that things don't work properly. That is what uh, has been happening in Pakistan, not only in domestic cricket, but also at the highest level. In my book, I wrote about uh, my first-class debut. I was playing for a club, which uh, the other club people did not like, because uh, we used to beat them regularly. And they belong to people who selected uh, Sin cricket team for first-class cricket. <laughs> <laughs> and, and despite my performance at the college level, at university level, uh, at club level, they wouldn't play me in first-class cricket. And the moment I joined them, I was advised that join them. If you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> so they picked me to play against Karachi A-team to make my debut, first-class debut. And you were playing for Sindh, weren't you? Yeah, which was the country Sindh, side. Sindh yeah. province, yes. Yeah. I had no idea what is first-class cricket till I played in a first-class match on my debut. My first catch that I took was of the legendary one of the finest batsmen of his time, Hanif Mohammed. Oh, wow. That's, the great man. I was, I was a young boy and I was told I was in the second year at college in the biology department. My father wanted me to become a doctor. I resented it always. <laughs> I wanted to study literature because I couldn't concentrate on physics and chemistry and biochemistry and all that. So when I was picked, I realized the secretary of the cricket association also picked himself. <laughs> you play first class cricket, the guy could not hold the bat. <laughs> <laughs> Playing against giants of Pakistan cricket team, test cricketers like Hanif and Intikhab Alam and Asif Iqbal and all that and Mahmoud Hussain. <laughs> so anyway, I caught Hanif Mohammed at the long leg boundary. My captain who had been to England with the Eaglets, he was a fast bowler. And he said to me, you stay at long leg boundary in front of the ladies stand. <laughs> and uh, I will bowl a bouncer at Hanif. And uh, he sometimes hooks up Ishli. And he bowled a bouncer. Hanif was on 30. And he hooked up Ishli. And it was coming down, you know, towards the long leg boundary. And I ran for my life. <laughs> if I drop the great man, I will never play first class cricket again. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Luckily you, for me, for about six, seven yards, I ran up and the ball is stuck in my hand. Wonderful. That was the start of my first-class debut. My debut was on the matting wicket. There was a lot of matting wicket matches on those days. And Prince Aslama I was facing and he bowled an arm ball and I had no clue, but I think he threw the ball. <laughs> no, so, but P Prince Aslam, I think Richard needs to explain Prince Aslam because he's one of our um, well, he's heroes. one of our heroes. We wrote a lot about him in White on Green, and you actually introduced us, uh, introduced me to his brother, uh, gave us a lot of material on him. Prince Oslam was the heir to a um, princely throne in India, which was lost at um, a partition, but he went on living like a prince, even though his sort of principality had gone. And um, he was a you know party lover. His party sort of carried on right into matches, didn't they, Kamar? I don't know. In that match, did he did he play as harmonium in the proceedings at any time? Because he used to like... He was into everything. Uh, he was a music lover. He was a cinema goer. He would have lavish dinners at his house in, in his, whatever you call, the Palace of Manavada in Karachi. And, uh, but the most memorable thing of that first class debut, besides Prince Aslam bowling me out, was that uh, it was the debut of not only me, but also 
the for, uh, future Pakistan captain Mushtaq Mohammed. Golly. And officially, he was he was would have been about thirteen, wouldn't he then? Uh, he looked very young to me. Yeah. He looked looked like a schoolboy. <laughs> he went on to make eighty seven. He was caught in the gully of my bowling. He tried to drive me. But uh, in the second innings, he took a lot of wickets. I think five wickets, uh, including me as well. Huh. So he took my wicket on my debut and I took his wicket on his debut. Mm. So that's why I remember my debut. Kamal, you mentioned your father, I think, opposed you becoming a cricketer. He wanted you to follow him into the, into the medical profession. And your father was right in a way, wasn't he? Because... Early Pakistan cricketers, even at the top level, were basically sort of amateurs, weren't they? It wasn't something you could do to make a living, was it? Not much money in those days. Uh, I think uh, in Pakistan or India or even in county cricket. And in Pakistan, for playing first-class cricket, I was getting 10 rupees a day. So you were getting paid about less than a pound a day for your turning out for Sindh in a first-class cricket match. Yeah, Most possibly 50 pence. Yeah. Mm. Mushtag Mohammed, for instance, he, at age, I think, 12 years old, he was employed as a cement clerk uh, by Mr Khalifuddin of the Public Works Board, wasn't he? Because that's how cricketers were... They were taken on by public organisations and uh, that enabled them to play cricket. This is a very interesting story, uh, Peter. You would love this. Mr. Kafiluddin Ahmed was a chief engineer of the Pakistan Works Department, PWD. He was a Bengali from East Pakistan. And he was very friendly with Abdul Hafiz Kardar, the first Pakistan test captain, and Justice Cornelius. In fact, uh, virtually single-handed, he ran the board himself. He was their treasurer. And being a Bengali, a great fan of cricket, when in India was coming to Pakistan uh, to replay return series in 1955, there was no big ground to hold crowd or hold a test match. So the commissioner of Karachi, Mr. Nakfi, asked this engineer, Bengali engineer, to build a stadium. Would you believe in three and a half months he built National Stadium of Karachi where you have been? Three months, three and a half months it took him to build that. He was the greatest benefactor of the game. You just mentioned about Mushtaq Muhammad, some kind of inspector. He had employed Hanif Muhammad, Wazir Muhammad, Mushtaq Muhammad, Intakhab Alam, Waqar Hassan, Nasimul Ghani for 150 rupees a month. 150 rupees a month. Did, they, did those cricketers ever have to look at a bag of cement in their life? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that, as you mentioned, they may not have ever seen a bag of cement. <laughs> that world you were in in the 1950s, it's sort of beautiful uh, as well, isn't it? I mean, you, you knew the great coach, Master Aziz, who was the who spotted Hanif Mohammed and many other of the Pakistan greats playing in schools cricket or local cricket, and then brought them on. Tell us about this great man, because you went on to ghost his newspaper column. Yes, tall and a strong-looking, dark-complexioned man. He was uh, into police, in Bombay police, before partition of India. And after the partition of India, he moved over to what became Pakistan in Karachi, and uh, he became a cricket coach in the Sin Modersa school, where... He developed uh, people like the legendary Hanif Muhammad and Waqar Hassan, uh, Maqsood Ahmad, Saeed Ahmad, uh, and uh, later 
on people like uh, Javed, uh, Miyadad, and all that. Uh, Master Abdulaziz was the coach. He coached me as well for one month in a camp, combined universities, promising players, camps. In fact, he was the father of uh, the former Indian great Salim Durrani, the left-handed Salim Durrani test cricketer of India, who never came to Pakistan to settle down with his father, and decided to stay in India and play test cricket for India. Abdul Aziz himself played an unofficial test match for India before migrating to Pakistan. He played against Australia. He had some problem with one eye and that finished his career. And he became a coach and a brilliant coach. He was in the camp uh, with the combined university players in which uh, there was Saeed Ahmed Farmer, who became later Pakistan captain, Ijaz Bhatt, uh, test player, Nazimul Ghani, Hasi Basan. He coached all of them. And uh, we were living in the National Stadium. And he, I was a student of uh, English literature. And he would call me and he said, look, I want to publish an article on cricket in an evening paper called The Leader. Uh, it is shut down now. Uh, but uh, in those days, it was quite popular evening. Huh? And uh, I used to, he used to write something in Urdu language. And I used to translate it into English. And he then passed it, uh, used to pass it on to the editor of the English language newspaper and felt very proud next day with uh, his byline, with my translation of it. <clears throat> so that got me interested into journalism, in fact, to tell you that in 1957, 58. Do you know, just before we leave him, do you know if he ever had any contact again with his son, Sal Salim Jarani? They were separated when Salim Jarani was 12. Do you know if they ever? Do you know if they ever met or had contact with him? He never went back to India, but he used to tell me stories about his uh, son. He once told me that uh, when my son was born, I went to a sports shop, bought a new ball, new cricket ball, and went to my wife and my child's bedside, which was Salim Durrani, and started to show this shining cricket ball into Salim Durrani's eyes, hoping that one day he will become a cricketer. Well, well, well it worked. <laughs> I, wish, I wish somebody had done that to me when I was born. <laughs> that was quite fascinating. <laughs> and he did become a test cricketer and a good one too. But the, the sad story or the mysterious story is here you have Master Aziz. His son becomes a test cricketer. He's the greatest cricket coach in Pakistan. And yet we don't think they've ever they ever met because of the border between the two countries. Is that right? Uh, not because of Peter. Not because of the border of uh, between the two countries. I suppose uh, when he left India, he had some kind of a strained relationship with his wife that uh, may have stopped him going back to India, or maybe Salim Durrani stopped going to Pakistan, something like that. Okay. He, so he never watched his son, as far as we know, in the flesh, playing for, for India? Not really. Not really. Because it's that's sad, really, isn't that's it? That's very sad. Yeah. And he, Salim Durrani was, was a terribly popular cricketer, wasn't he? he? He was the sort of cricketer, it was a bit like Shahid Afridi, wasn't he? Years before, he, you know, he had sixes on demand from the crowd. And Richard, very handsome-looking man. I met him first time uh, in... 1987 in the test match, uh, match at Jaipur. Suddenly, this Pakistan president, General Zaul Haq, uh, had appeared. Uh, mm. 
what is called a cricket diplomacy tour. Relationship was strained between India and Pakistan. And this Pakistan President uh, General Zawlak suddenly appeared in the Jaipur test, unannounced. Uh. And there, on a bus stand, going to Delhi, I met Salim Durrani. I recognized him. Uh. And I went to him and I said, uh, you are Salim Durrani? And he said, I am. So I said, your father was my coach in Karachi. So, so he became very friendly with me on journey from Jaipur to Delhi. Gave me his card, invited me home. So I met him once. That's wonderful. He, he had a brief film career, didn't he? He was one of the first cricketers who had a, a movie career. One or two others have followed him since. Yes. So he did uh, join, I think worked in a movie, and a couple of others like Sandeep Patel. Even Gavaskar was in a movie. In a Bollywood movie. Kamar, you've described in your book some meetings with memorable people, uh, but there's also one um, memorable meeting you refused to have uh, on principle, and that was with um, General Zia, who was then the president of Pakistan. So would you like to um, tell us about the circumstances of, um, of that? I refused to shake hand with him, with the president of Pakistan. He Oops. was invited in 19... 19- I think uh, in a test match against India in Lahore, this hotel dinner with India Pakistan for uh, for India and Pakistan players, and then Air Marshal Noor Khan, who was the chief of the Pakistan Cricket Board then, chief of the Hockey Federation and a squash, uh, you know, world champion Jahangir Khan and Jan Sher Khan and all that, and uh, he said to me he wanted to introduce me and Arif Abbasi also this his secretary told me the board secretary. He want, they wanted to introduce me to the president of Pakistan. So they lined up uh, before the dinner, the Indian journalists, visiting journalists and Pakistani journalists. And he, the president arrived, started uh, shaking hands uh, with the journalist. And I got out of the line of the journalist and went back into the, my room. I didn't want to shake hands with the president. Why, did, why didn't you want to shake hands with Zia? Because I think... Uh, I, I never thought he's very sincere to his country. He died the following year, didn't he? I think it was 88 he died, isn't it? He was it? killed in, in his a, plane crash. Yes. Yeah. In the plane crash, yeah. Uh, he developed a drug and gun culture in this country. And he was talking always about uh, religion and Islam and all that. And things were quite opposite to what he was preaching. So I did not uh, like uh, the way he was handling the affairs of the country. So I refused to shake hand. I moved out. In the, then I came back when the dinner started. And uh, later in the night, the air marshal uh, rang me in my room, invited me in his room and asked me that he wanted to introduce me to the president. Why did you got out of the, the, that line of journalists? So I said I didn't want to meet him. Because he, I think he is not uh, sincere to my country, and I don't like it. And by the way, you weren't the only person. Abdul Sattar Eidi, the great man uh, in Karachi, that uh, everybody in Karachi reveres. And I had the uh, Abdul Sattar, who founded the welfare state, really single-handedly, with uh, private cha- from private charity. He was asked to meet uh, Zia. And he went up to Islamabad. He told me this story, and it's in the wonderful book about him. And when he arrived, he denounced uh, Zia. He denounced the corruption of the country. And yeah. However, you you didn't um, 
refused to meet um, Kerry Packer uh, in the at the height of the um, the Packer Revolution. How did that meeting come about, Kamar? And um, what did you make of Packer at that time? You know, in 1977, uh, secretly, because Kerry Packer was denied uh, the rights to televise international cricket for his Channel 9 in Australia, and the contract was given to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABC. Uh, despite uh, higher bidding by Kerry Packer, he did not like it, and he walked out of the meeting of the ABC and uh, people responsible for it, uh, warning them that he will teach them a lesson. And in fact, he did. And he secretly, with the help of uh, Rishi Bano, Asif Iqbal, Tony Gregg, and Clive Lloyd, started to recruit uh, international teams and players to play in his World Series cricket. And uh, as a result, uh, uh, the then Test and County Cricket Board and the ICC, you know, they started to ban players who will not play for their country if they played for Kerry Packer. And Kerry Packer challenged them in the court of law in the High Court in Fleet Street in London. I used to go uh, sit in the gallery, listen to the uh, Justice Slade and Lord Alexander. At times, the former Pakistan captain Mushtaq Muhammad used to accompany me. I used to report for BBC uh, the court proceedings. Uh, for the Urdu in the service. And uh, one evening, Mushtaq Muhammad, after the court case in the London High Court was over, he said, would you like to meet Kerry Packer? I said, I would love to. So there was six to seven black Jaguar limousines outside the High Court to take us to Dorchester Hotel in Parkland. We went, me, Asif Iqbal, Tony Gregg, and uh, Mushtaq Muhammad. On the top floor in a penthouse, he was there, Tony Kerry Packer, first time that I met him. A giant size, uh, tall character, uh, very much like a gangster you could imagine in a mm. Hollywood movie. And Mushtaq Muhammad said to Kerry Packer, this is uh, Kamar Ahmed, he's a journalist, and he's my friend. So Kerry Packer said, oh no, not another journalist. Mm. So Mushtaq said, no, no, he's journalist, after, he's, first he's my friend. So I said, in that case, uh, coming, welcome. So we went in and <laughs> he sat like a Nawab or a Maharaja in his uh, uh, sitting room. And he flicked one shoe from the other leg in one corner of the room and another from another pair of legs to another corner of the room. And then he clapped like a Maharaja or King and his wife came in and he said, uh, I would like a glass of milk. I was uh, quite a bit surprised because Australians do drink a lot of beer. And he asked for a glass of milk. And then minutes later, he clapped his hand again. And the swing door opened and there was a huge trolley and a big cake on it. And they put some candles on it. And then Kerry Packer addressed Mr. Tony Craig, the former England captain. He said, you silly boy. You did not tell me this is your birthday today? <laughs> I know. Here is a surprise for you. <laughs> so that was something very strange, meeting Kerry Packer for the first time. <laughs> uh, he, in fact, uh, was said to be the rebel, a rebellion of the game, uh, standing up against the authorities of the game, like ICC and all the cricket boards. But uh, later it turned out to be that he became a benefactor. He was taken as a benefactor 
because he not only increased the salaries of the players, the county cricketers have started to get better contracts. The test cricketers started to get big money. He was the man who introduced uh, uh, floodlit cricket, uh, white ball, colored clothing and all that, all these innovations. And when he died, when he passed away, there was uh, silence in the Melbourne cricket ground in his honor. So I'm glad I met him. That's striking. You also met the greatest uh, cricketer of all time, the fine uh, Don Bradman. Tell us how you your your meeting with. That's amazing. My first tour to uh, Australia, 1983, with Imran. There was a little controversy over there because uh, Imran was appointed as captain of Pakistan while he was not able to bowl. He was suffering from a stress fracture, taking earlier in 1982 40 wickets in the series against India. 40, over zero. And that, uh, that's where he got his injury. But in 1983, while he's he was recuperating, that he was made captain of Pakistan to Australia. And knowing fully well that he will can't bowl in the first three test matches, uh, he was in the captain. And in the Adelaide test match, uh, in those days, the press gallery used to be in the crowd in front of the dressing room. And I was sitting there, there was an old gentleman with glasses and uh, with a thermos and with a landline phone sitting there. And I said to him, uh, Adelaide, where Bradman lives. So is this possible to meet Bradman? And he said, uh, young man, not possible. He does not like journalists. Uh, <laughs> but he comes in the test match, he's got a box uh, next to the dressing room. So why don't you go out and take a picture of him from your camera? So I walked out and saw Bradman first time in my life sitting there, sipping coffee or, or tea. And I took his picture from my zoom lens. Came back again. I said to this old man, I, how I would love to see Don Bradman, the greatest batsman ever, 99.94 batting test average and everything. He said, I said, look, uh, this is the first time I've come to Australia. I would love to see this man. So I said, okay, let me try this. And just before tea time, he said to me that you are a lucky man, young lad, or someone from South Australian Cricket Association coming to take you to Bradman for five minutes. And the man came and took me and Bradman welcomed me in his box. And then he realized that uh, I report cricket for Vision and Almanac and for BBC. So after five minutes, uh, I said, I beg your leave, sir, because uh, you... I've given me only five minutes. He said, no, it looks like you know your cricket, so you sit down here and have another coffee. So, so I had a chat with him for 20, 25 minutes. That was my first meeting with Sir Don Bradman. I came back after that meeting. It's a pity that I didn't have my camera with me. I was so excited, I forgot my camera in the press box. And I came back and I thanked this old man, not knowing who he was. So I said, oh... You like meeting Bradman? I said, yeah. So I said, and who are you, sir? <laughs> who are you writing for? So he said, uh, young man, uh, I am Bill O'Reilly. Tiger Bill O'Reilly. Oh, oh the second greatest cricketer of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I am a columnist of uh, Sydney Morning Herald. And I said, my God, I please forgive me. I know who is Tiger Bill O'Reilly. I didn't realize it is you. <laughs> So he immediately pulled out a paper from his notebook, very kind of him. And he wrote all the details about his career as a leg spin bowler and everything, not uh, his relationship with Bradburn, of course. <laughs> I read about it, that is, yeah. he had no cordial relationship with Don Bradburn. But still, he 
gave me the opportunity to meet Don Bradman. Lovely and story. Very generous. On this note, in which he has written details about him, he signed an autograph, which is my prized possession. Tamar, that's such a beautiful story, meeting not just one, but two of the finest cricketers of all time. Bill O'Reilly, what a, what a man, what a bowler. Now, you also met the greatest, probably the greatest human being of the 20th century. Tell us about that. Very privileged, uh, indeed I am. Uh, that was in uh, 1991. Nelson Mandela uh, was in prison, uh, the ANC leader in Robben Island for not all his 27 years, but uh, some of it, I think, 13, 14 years in Robben Island and uh, uh, during the apartheid regime. And when he was freed after 27 years of imprisonment, he had a big fan and following and supporters all over the world. And uh, uh, things started change in South Africa. The non-white cricket board, which was called South African Cricket Board, and the cricket board of the white South African Cricket Union was merging into United Cricket Board of South Africa after Mandela's release from prison. So Dr. Ali Bakar, who was for years trying to campaign to bring South Africa back into international cricket, he used to come to England with Joe Paminski and Deakins, and they would not uh, accept, ICC would not accept them till Mandela was released. So they were merging the two cricket boards, the black and white cricket board into one, United Cricket Board, 1991 June. There was a banquet at the Wanderers, Wanderers Test Ground. And Dr. Baka from South African Cricket Union invited Sir Garfield Sobers, Rishi Beno, Sunil Gavaska, E.W. Swanton, uh, me and uh, Tony Kozia and some of the Indian journalists for this banquet. And we were accommodated in the white only area in the hotel with a special permission. Would you believe this? <laughs> so I went in apartheid and we attended this banquet. Uh, Sunil Gavaskar and his wife Pami were oh, very keen to meet Mr. Mandela. So was I. So Dr. Bakar. She said, he's a hot cake, he's, everyone wants to meet him, but let me try. So he tried, and the, his house in Soweto was renovated by his wife, Vinnie Mandela. We were 8 o'clock in the morning, I got the good news that uh, there are people coming to take us, me, Gavaskar, his wife, and a couple of Indian journalists to see Mr. Mandela. We went in Soweto, about 10 kilometers away from Johannesburg. And we entered his house. There were a lot of gifts and presents in his small sitting room in Soweto. He turned up and Gavaskar was introduced. Sir, this is the former captain of India, Mr. Sunil Gavaskar. So he reacted, Mr. Mandela. He said, oh, you are a great man. I should have come to see you. So Gavaskar said, I am nothing, sir. I am only a cricketer. You are a legend, you are a great man. He said, no, no, I know, in the prison I used to read about you. You are a great man. So we sat down. We started talking. And while we were talking, I said, Mr. Mandela, can I switch on my BBC tape recorder? And he said, uh, you are welcome, switch it on. 
So I said, uh, while talking to politics uh, with Gavaskar and his wife, and, and I said, Mr. Mandela, I know you were a champion boxer in your student days, but are you interested, uh, have you ever been interested in cricket? He said, of course uh, I am. So I said, uh, tell me. So he gave me a great line, in fact, uh, which he, I, I cannot ever erase from my mind. And he said, uh, we black people, used to be caged in a barbed wire cage in the ground, not allowed to sit with the white people to watch test cricket. So I was in the cage in a test match against Australia at Durban. And we don't support South Africa, I said, in a very high tone. We support visiting team. Obviously understandable why he told me this. And then he said, uh, South Africa was winning. We black people were not happy. All of a sudden, one Australian came and he made a hundred. He won the test match for Australia. And we black people, taken out of the cage, went home to the township dancing. But when I came out of the prison, I was invited by the Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke, who happened to be a cricket player as well at yeah. club level. Very much so, yeah. Oh, true. yeah. And he started to talk cricket to me, Mandela said, and I said about Neil Harvey. And he tried to get hold of him on the phone and talk to me. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. This is absolutely fantastic story. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, while we were leaving him, Man Gavaskar said, Mr. Mandela, can you can I have your cufflink? <laughs> and the cufflink was of gold. Good grief. South Africa produces gold and diamond. <laughs> <laughs> so Mandela said, uh, he looked at his cufflink and he said, just uh, give me a second. He pulled a book uh, from a bookshelf. And I got on towards his back to take his picture. And he opened the book and wrote on it, to the greatest batsman of the world, Sunil Gavaskar, and signed Mandela. Wow. And when, while we were walking out of his house, Gavaskar's wife said to Gavaskar, Why did you ask his cufflink? Look at this, what he's written on this book, to the greatest batsman of the world. <laughs> so this is valuable. Yeah. Worth yeah. in gold. Both more than its weight, yeah. But you know, when he became black president, first black president, and uh, I went with the West Indies and I was lined up with Wesley Hall and Kanai to meet the first black president. We entered the dining room at lunchtime. And he, what I'm telling you this is to just look at his memory. This man, 27 years in prison. He shook hand with uh, Wesley Hall and Kanai. As I was shaking hand, I was introduced. This is Kamar Ahmed from BBC and this. So I said, Mr. President, I'm sure you remember, I came three years ago with the former Indian captain to your house. So you know what he said to me? He said, oh, oh you are the same man who asked me to switch on his tape recorder. <laughs> My God, <laughs> you know, what a great man he was. Amazing, considering the number of people he must have met in the, in the interim, in between those, between those times. Yep. But also the... Uh, the, what you would get there is the Mandela in his jail cell following the cricket scores, which is, um, as a cricket lover, it, it's, it's a nice thought. Of course, he had many more important things to attend to, but that's lovely to know. Come on, it's been wonderful having you with us. It's been tremendous hearing your memories of um, playing and watching and reporting cricket. We've really barely scratched the surface of them, so I think um, if uh, conditions allow in Karachi, perhaps you'll join us again. But for now, I have to say thank you again and um, and goodbye from me, Richard Heller. And uh, Kamar, it's always been so enlightening talking to you. 
over many years. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure, Peter and Richard. Thank you for having me once again.